0: We love him because he first loved us. We've had an amazing time of worship, haven't we? To hear the story of God's transforming grace in those baptisms, to sing and hear sung for us the wonders of who Christ is and how amazing God's love is for us, if that doesn't stir your soul, I don't know what will. Have you ever had an encounter with God? Have you encountered God? That's the question we're going to be tackling this morning. Or has God encountered you? A number of months ago, I was sitting in a fast food restaurant in Ajax. just minding my own business. And I was between appointments. And as I was sitting there, I caught the eye of a young man, probably in his early 20s, across the uh, um, restaurant. And he just glanced up at me. And we looked back. Nothing was said. I was looking down at my notes and planning my day and he got up from his seat, ran across and said to me, God really loves you and took off for work. <laughs> Pastor Nick, I don't know what kind of witnessing tech tactics you've been training the uh, young adults uh, in the area, I don't know if he's been under your influence, but he'd had obviously some kind of encounter with God A- and he wanted me to have an encounter with God. doesn't the impact of the gospel challenge you to share it? And and we find a variety of ways. That might not be the most effective way. (laughs) Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1? 1 Timothy chapter 1, how would you describe your encounter with God in three or four words? We're looking this morning at the first letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to his young trainer his young trainee rather who was serving in the city of ephesus paul had met timothy on his missionary journey and had seen in this young man absolute leadership potential and he joined the apostolic band he joined the church planting team the missionary team that was traveling throughout the roman empire and timothy became a proven worker We saw last week the difference in terms of their testimonies. Uh, Timothy was converted, it appears, as a child. Paul said to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, how from infancy, how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The, the, The sincere faith, the genuine faith, first lived in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice and also lived in Timothy. And it appears that the men in Timothy's life were absent. They really lacked spiritual influence. And uh, men, that's just just a word to the wise. This is not Father's Day, but you can still pay attention. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, in this introductory chapter to Timothy, is unpacking for him and really sharing his own testimony. We'll work our way through this text. 1 Timothy chapter 1, follow along, please, in verse 12. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymeneus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I want us to work through this text, and I've selected four words out of it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that really describes Paul's encounter with with God and God's encounter with Paul and really sort of a framework in which Timothy can use as a minister of the gospel. As he encounters people in the city of Ephesus, as he proclaims the gospel, he will guide people through the Word of God, through preaching, through teaching, through personal evangelism to these four topics, at least three of them, if not a fourth. Sinner, Savior, Servant, and then the issue of Shipwreck. So let's work our way through this. Let's begin with the topic of Sinner. If you do some Google searching, you'll find there are 29,400,000 responses. It'll take you a while to figure out all the sinners that are in the world, all right? The word sinner is a common word, maybe not as common as it used to be. There was a book a number of years ago entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? Whatever Happened to Sin? We don't tend to use it as often, and you don't hear it as in, in, in common conversation as much as we used to. A lot of people think they're pretty good people. A lot of people think that they've done enough good and hopefully the good that they've done will outweigh the bad that they've done and and they deny the verdict which the Bible uh, presses on them under the judgment of God, that we are sinners. Paul knew himself to be a sinner. Let's look at the text. In verse 13, as he looks back in his life, in verse 12, we'll come back to that in a moment, in verse 12, he's amazed and he's grateful to, to Christ for appointing him in service. We'll come to that. But then he looks in his previous life and says to Timothy, even though, verse 13, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Even though I was this, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. What was Saul like? Would you take your Bibles and turn back with me to chapter 8 of Acts? Acts 8 And verse 2, verse 2, we have the burial of Stephen, the first martyr, the first man who sealed his testimony in blood as he confessed who Jesus was. As he took his stand, as he defended his convictions about the lordship of Jesus Christ, he paid with his life. Around the world, this year again, men and women will seal their testimony in blood. We don't like to talk about that a lot. We haven't experienced that here in North America. Perhaps the day is coming. Are you ready? Are you prepared to take your stand? Are you prepared to even take ridicule at work or among your family because of your commitment to Jesus Christ? In Acts chapter 8 and verse 2, it says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Notice verse 3, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul was on a mission. Saul was passionate about what he believed. The problem was, he didn't believe what was true. He thought he was lining up with God. He thought he was committed to the true and the living God. He worshipped the God of his ancestors, the God of the Old Testament, or so he thought. But he refused to accept the Messiah. He refused to bow his knee before Jesus who is called the Christ. And then in chapter 9, of course, we have the the, the testimony. We won't take time to read it, but in Acts 9, we have the conversion of Saul where he is on the road to Damascus, armed with letters, armed with authority that if he finds anyone who is a follower of the way, he can arrest them and have them prosecuted and persecuted because of their stand for Christ. Now, back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. How does he describe his experience? How does he describe his life before he'd encountered the grace of God? He said, I was a blasphemer. I was a blasphemer. Join the cast camp this week is going to pick up that theme. I trust you're praying for that camp. They're going to tackle that theme of blasphemy and misusing the Lord's name. It's a serious offense, isn't it? Go back to the Ten Commandments where the Lord says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's a serious underlining of the name and the prominence that God holds over over his own name. Paul says to Timothy, I was a blasphemer. I misused God's name. I misused the name of Christ. Are any of us guilty of that? I, I, I was a persecutor. I was a persecutor. I, I hunted down the word that's used here is describing that of hunting down like a wild animal, chasing on a hunt, and in, in, instead of game and you know the hunting season. I don't want to speak against hunters, uh, but, but you know there, this is the illustration he's using, isn't it? But here he's hunting down people instead of animals. He's hunting them down. He pursued them to death because he so wanted to stamp out the name of Jesus Christ, and yet God saved him. It's an amazing story. The story of his conversion is picked up in two further occasions in the book of Acts, as he has an opportunity to share in, in full the testimony of God's amazing grace. He said he was a violent man. You, you, you can imagine the intensity, the focus. I don't think I'd want to be giving out tracks along the Damascus Road. You know, when he's walking by, I just think he, this man was, was, in, was intent, he was focused, he was in, in, engaged in one pursuit to eradicate the name of Christ from the minds of people. But God had other plans, didn't he? You see, that, that's the reality of an encounter with God, that God meets you where you are. God can stop you in your tracks. Listen to the testimony. Did you hear the testimonies this morning from the Baptistry? An amazing encounter with God. God has a plan. God can change your plans in in, in just a moment, can he not? How does he describe himself? He was was aggressive, he was rude, he was hurting others for the sake of hurting them. All in the name of religion. Any people in our world doing that today? Any people caught up in, in a mission to fulfill the mandate of their deity? In order to stamp out the name of Christ, read the news, follow what's happening in the persecuted church, and you'll see the reality of this kind of pressure. How does he describe himself in verse 15? He says that he is the the worst of sinners. Uh, Timothy, as you build your ministry, as you work with the elders at Ephesus and lead them to establish a testimony for the glory of God and for the purposes of Christ in that city... Here, here is a trustworthy saying. Here is a faithful saying, one that you can build your ministry on, one that you should sing about, one that you should share, one that you should instruct the people in. Here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That would be amazing, isn't it? Isn't that an amazing truth? We get to proclaim Christ. We get to sing about the saving one. His saving grace, his rescue plan, God's amazing rescue plan, but then Paul personalizes it. It's not this general truth that he wants communicated, this general idea that he wants embedded into the church at Ephesus. He looks at at himself, he knows who he is, and he says to Timothy, of whom I am the worst. Now, who's the worst sinner you know? All of us have in our minds, we have a scale, don't we? Have you ever been tempted to compare your behavior with others? You know, we're shocked by the front page news. None of us want to be, you know, Section A headline sinners. We're better than that. We're radically amazed and saddened as we, you know, watch the news stream across our screens. But who's the worst sinner you know? Paul said, it was me. It, it, it's me. When I know who God is and when I know who I am, I have fallen short of the glory of God. I had two interesting conversations with ministry leaders this week. One of them asked me this question. He said, Pastor Keith, why do leaders, Christian leaders, and so many Christians stop seeing themselves as sinners? Good question, isn't it? Here's an apostle. Here's one of the foundation layers for the church. Ephesians 2 20 says we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here's one of the main leaders in the New Testament, and he says, I'm the worst sinner. One of the commentators, man by the name of Locke, wrote The sinner remains a sinner even if forgiven. The past is always there as a stimulus to deeper penitence and service. Wow, I'll read it for you again. It's not on the screen. The sinner remains a sinner even if forgiven. The past, my past, my failure, is always there as a stimulus to deeper penitence and service. My brother-in-law, who's a preacher of the gospel, says, Keith, every... Believer has a hall of shame. Every believer has conduct in their life, in their past, in what they've thought, said, or done that is a reminder of their need of grace. Good point. We're, 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 we're never beyond it. We're never beyond it, are we? And, and he pleads ignorance. He, he, he was the worst of sinners. He said... Back in 13, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't realize how uninformed I was, how unaware I was of God's standards and my failure. The little book cover that you can see on the screen is the the biography of autobiography, spiritual autobiography of John Bunyan. Here's an old battered-up version that I have. It's John Bunyan's life story, and it's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's an amazing struggle. It's an amazing uh, process that he went through for years and years and years, perhaps. And God did know the value of Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps the enemy of our soul, Satan himself, knew how strategic this man was as he was rescued out of the dominion of darkness and brought into God's kingdom. And how he tormented him. Read the story. Twelve years in prison for preaching the gospel. He writes Pilgrim's Progress. And he tells of his account. I'll refer to it in our closing commitment this morning. Now, how should such a person be treated? How, how, how should a sinner be treated? In fact, ask yourself this morning. In fact, the key question is, have I, have I recognized recognize myself to be a sinner? That's the question, isn't it? That, that's the beginning point. That's the introduction that we need to wrestle with as we present the gospel. My wife and I were talking about the Puritans uh, earlier in a conversation this week. The Puritans, who, all, who have their own package of, of extra goodies that they, uh, they try to impl- impose on the church, believe this principle. that, that the law, the standards of God, needed to be taught to people before you brought the gospel. What did Jesus say? It was those who are sick who need a doctor, not those who are well. So in presenting the standards of God and the glory of God, you are reminding people of God's holiness, God's justice for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's step one, isn't it? So the question, ask yourself, have I considered myself to be a sinner? How should such a person be treated by God when God encounters him? How would you treat a person who was a blasphemer? You're the judge, you're in a court of law, and a person, the the accused, stands before you, accused of blasphemy, persecution, and violence. How will you treat them? Isn't this the amazing part of Christianity? Isn't this the wonder of God's grace when we see how God responded to this sinner? God commends his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's look at the word Savior. Let's build, let's let's move forward in this account with Paul in terms of his conversion. Who is the Savior? Who is the Savior? What kind of interaction has Paul had with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Notice how he describes him. He says that he is a shower of mercy in verse 13. I get that out of the last part of verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy mercy if you have four words that you're going to yell at somebody in a fast food restaurant (laughs) i wouldn't suggest it's god really loves you why not try i was shown mercy that's paul's testimony is that not your testimony this morning have you received what you deserve I mean, that's what mercy is. Justice is when the judge demands full payment for the crimes that we've committed. Mercy is when we get what we don't deserve. I was shown mercy. How else does he describe him? He describes Christ as a a revealer, a supplier of grace, faith, and love. Look at verse fourteen. The grace, we've been singing about it. We've heard it testify to this morning. This is the essence of our faith, is it not? The grace, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Have you ever had something poured out on you abundantly? Anybody participate in the bucket challenge? (laughs) You know when something's poured out on you abundantly, you're going to feel it. If it's water or some other substance, I mean, you just, you're just you just overwhelmed by it, right? Try standing under Niagara Falls. You won't be able to stand up. Go to African Lion Safari when that big bucket, you know the one I'm talking about? Some of you have taken your kids there, and it's, it's filling up, and the kids are waiting with anticipation. You know the one I'm talking about? Some of you have been there. Some of you have never been there. You've got to go. And all of a sudden, you know that's coming. It's filled, and they're just you know, leaders and leaders or gallons and gallons for those of us who are older, and all of a sudden, it pours out. Paul uses this illustration of this abundant flow, and what is it that's coming from, from God to us? It's grace. There's a super abundant flow of grace along with faith and love. Christ has everything I need. That, that's what I'm called to believe. In Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. That's an amazing quote. Colossians 2.9. Great verse to memorize. In Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. And then Paul says to them, and you are complete in him. He has what you need. The devil comes along and, and, and leads us to doubt that. We, 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 we lose our grip as it were we begin to doubt we really wonder well does jesus can jesus really meet the deepest need of my life and so we try other things we try cheap substitutes knockoffs anybody been tricked by those plastic junk instead of the real thing spiritually that has huge consequences He's a savior of sinners. We've already seen that. He came into the world to save sinners, to rescue sinners. And then in verse 16, Paul said that he is the displayer of unlimited patience. Can you imagine if I said to the ushers, you know, as we close the service later today, we're going to have just two exits, Out the center exit will be all those who have limited patience. And we'll use, well, we'll head out this emergency. Anyone with unlimited patience can go this way. Where would we all line up? Where would we all line up? We all are limited in our patience, are we not? And yet here is Christ The displayer of unlimited patience. Unlimited. Can you even understand that? (laughs) When you and I are so limited, right? Test your patience by driving on the highway. (laughs) Test your patience by looking after kids. Volunteer at a camp. Help out at day camp. Help out in the faith land. And see how patient you are. How unlimited your patience is. We all have our struggles, don't we? He is a displayer of unlimited patience. The question for us is, have I met the Savior? Notice what he does in verse 17. Having described who he is and how he has encountered Christ, in the middle of this chapter or near the end of this chapter, he hasn't even gone that far into the book. What does he do? Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jordan was involved in planning the service. He wanted to get two offerings out of us this morning. I guess it'd be easier than two sermons, don't you think? Well, I don't know. We won't vote on that. But, but I mean, typically when you, when you plan for the benediction, isn't it near the end of the service? When someone says amen, when the preacher says amen, you kind of think he's just about done. What, what, what's happening here? Why in the middle of his testimony to his younger colleague does he burst into praise? It's because theology, the study of God, leads to doxology. If you know God, you'll praise God. The, 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 the weakness of our praise it comes or stems from the weakness of our understanding of who God is. We've lost sight of God. We've lost sight of the wonder of it all, have we not? We, we become too familiar. Familiarity does breed contempt. And this, this, this familiarity sometimes in the Christian community is a dangerous thing. We talk about holy things as if they're ordinary. We lower the name of God, the the most holy, the thrice holy God is brought down, as it were, to our level. We think he's just one of us when he is so far above us. The heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What God are you worshiping this morning? What does God do with those he saves? Does he not make them servants? Did he not equip this rebel, this persecutor, this violent man? Did he not turn his life around? He was headed toward Damascus. He had a purpose, and as he left that city, he left totally changed by the grace of God. He became a servant. The rest of his life was spent with energy coming from God to proclaim the glory of Christ. If you don't believe in the transforming power of the gospel, read the conversion of Saul. Even psychologists, even university professors who sometimes have another mission for our studies will tell you that transformation brought about significant change in his life. We call it The gospel. We call it regeneration. We say it's the evidence that the Spirit of God is alive. God is still changing lives. We sang about that. We saw it testified to this morning. Why? Why are we still so skeptical that God does not want to save people? He's the saving God. And as he calls us into service, we looked at this last week, so I won't dwell on it too long, but he calls us into ministry. And notice in verse 12, he gives us the strength. That's the, look at verse 12 with me again. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. Has that not been your testimony? Have you ever ventured to tr- even try to serve God? Uh, all of us have had that experience. We've been asked to do something that we didn't even think we were qualified to do. Anybody been there? And, and we, we, we ventured into it. Someone persuaded and said, well, just try it. Help out with this. Serve in this capacity. Give your testimony, whatever it was. And guess what? We discovered the God who had saved us is the God who strengthens us. And and we actually go forward with him. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. Notice this, that he considered me faithful. The faithful one considered the unfaithful To be faithful, that's a mystery. Saul, who had been unfaithful, was called by God to be faithful. Isn't that your life story? Isn't that the transforming, ongoing evidence of the grace of God, that we rest in his faithfulness? We don't sing, great is my faithfulness, we sing, great is thy faithfulness. He's the faithful one. Paul was not self-appointed. Read Galatians if you're not convinced about that. He, he didn't figure this out. He didn't appoint himself, tap himself on the shoulder and say, this is what I'm going to do. Tonight we're going to be talking about missions. We're going to engage together. The Arnolds and I are going to be talking about India and the work of the gospel in that amazing land with 1.3 billion people. Do you have any idea what God's doing there? It's an amazing. The need is amazing. The opportunity is great. They're going to share some of what God entrusted uh, to them. Well, the final S really now gets personal, doesn't it? Look at what Paul presses now on Timothy in the last few verses. Having explained his knowledge of himself as a sinner, having pointed clearly, explicitly a number of times to the Savior, he now challenges Timothy with a personal danger, a real danger for those who are servants. You know, we ask ourselves this question, am I a servant of Jesus Christ? That's the key question. But now look at this issue of shipwreck. This is one of those sort of inside stories. This is one of those dark topics that shows up at leadership meetings where sometimes people who at once or earlier had professed to know Christ no longer follow him. Those who were passionate proclaimers of the gospel who've turned their backs. What did they let go of? How does this happen? Shipwrecks were a common expression. Shipwrecks were a common illustration in Paul's day used really among philosophers. Greek philosophers often compared negative experiences to shipwreck. They talked about the dark experiences that sometimes individuals would go through and and when things didn't go well, they, they were experiencing shipwreck. Paul says to Timothy, I, I, I really want to press this. This is really a personal conversation. You and I are getting to witness this very intimate sharing between two leaders. You're kind of seeing the, 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 the dark side. As Saul, as it were, says to Timothy, now Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction, look at 18, in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Somehow in the process of ministry, as Timothy was set apart, perhaps through ordination, perhaps through some kind of public recognition by the church, there were those who, under the direction of the Spirit of God, spoke words over him. Through prayer, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Different leaders saw in this young man incredible potential. They wanted to encourage him. They were blessed, as we're blessed here at Calvary, to watch the next generation pick up the torch. That's an Olympic analogy, isn't it? Pick up the torch and run with it into the future. I trust you're doing everything you can to encourage our young adults and young people and kids to go forward with Christ. Are you distracting them? That's another issue, isn't it? So here was Timothy, and somehow in the past, there had been some prophecies once made about him. Who knew when this young man sat in the group that he was going to be the strategic leader at Ephesus? The story of David Livingston, the man who had come to his community to present the gospel, to preach. He was invited to a ladies' meeting, a women's meeting. Sorry, ladies, but in those days, it wasn't much of a priority for the church. And as the speaker wrote in his journal that day, he said, I had the opportunity to speak to a small group of women and a young boy. The reality was, in the plan of God, the young boy was David Livingston. The young boy sitting in that women's gathering would be used of God to bring the gospel. You don't know what God's doing as you serve him. You don't know the potential of kids that come to camp, of the kids that you volunteer to work with at clubs, of the individuals you pour into their lives. You don't know where God will take them. Be faithful. Leave the results with him and watch what God will do. So here is Timothy, and his, his encouragement, Paul says to him, by following these, you may fight the good fight. That, that's a model, isn't it, for him. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's going to say to Timothy in his closing letter, I have fought the good fight. I, I ask you this morning, are you doing that? Not are you fighting, right? but are you fighting the good fight? There's a difference. Even Christians, Christian leaders sometimes fight. But are you fighting the good fight? Are you investing time and energy into the kingdom of God? Are you seeking first, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or do your priorities come first and then God gets the leftovers? God's calling us on. He calls us out, doesn't he? He exposes our priorities. What does he say here? Timothy, I want you to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Maintain your grip on what you believe, basically, and how you live. Your faith, the truth, you are not going to buckle or adjust your message simply because it's not popular anymore. So are you holding on? And how about your conscience? Any little area where God by his spirit is pressing on your conscience? You say, Pastor Keith, that little event was 30 years ago. Some of you aren't even 30 years old. Uh, it's still bothering you. Why? Why? You never settled it. You never prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You're wondering, why am I not making progress? I just feel I'm so restricted in my walk with God. God is saying, I want you to go back. I want you to make things right. Paul understood shipwrecks, didn't he? And he used the illustration of Hymenaeus, And Alexander, who he says, I've handed over to Satan to be taught, not to blaspheme. Wow. This is serious. I wonder if there's any here today who you look back and you think, there are just some unsettled issues. Unsettled issues. let me just close with just a little quote out of Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. This is John Bunyan writing, and he writes, I went to church twice a day on Sundays, and while I was there, I was very devout, talking and singing just as the others did, yet all the while I kept my wicked life. I went to church. I sang with passion. I sang all to Jesus, I'll surrender. I'll go where you want me to go. Everything I do, I do it for you. And I knew in my heart I was singing a lie. All the while, all the while, I kept my wicked life. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, who poured out on Saul his abundant grace, mercy, and love, and faith, I invite you today, come back to God. Use this opportunity to renew your fellowship with him. What's the assurance God gives us if we confess our sins? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What what do you have in place? Have you put proper processes in place to hold on to faith and a good conscience? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we've been singing about, the one we've gathered to worship this day, we bow before you. We thank you for the work of the spirit of god to draw our attention first of all to our sin pointing out in us where we have fallen short of your glory we thank you for the way you reveal to us who jesus is thank you for the many testimonies the testimonies we saw in the baptistry the testimonies we heard sung about the songs of your amazing grace mercy and love Direct us in our response. May we hear the still, small voice of your Spirit as he speaks truth to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Bunyan writes, One day it happened that the preacher was preaching and my conscience began to prick me. I thought he'd preach this sermon just on purpose to show me my evil ways. That was the first time I can remember that I felt guilty and very burdened for the moment at least, and I went home when the sermon was ended with a great depression upon my spirit. For a little while, this made me bitter against my former pleasures, but it did not last very long. Before I had had a good dinner, the trouble began to go off my mind, and my heart returned to its old course. Oh, how glad I was that the fire was put out, and that I might sin again without worrying about it. The same day as I was out in the field, a voice started from heaven into my soul with these words. Will you now leave your sins and go to heaven or keep your sins and go to hell? Friends, the issues presented in 1 Timothy 1:12 1, to 20 are not casual topics of conversation. These are life issues. And my challenge to you today is while God is speaking, while he's tapping you on the shoulder, hear his voice. Turn to him. Come back to him. And you'll find his mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Will be saved. May today be a day of salvation, a day of restoration, a day of repentance and renewal. Call us by name, call us to change, call us to yourself. We thank you for the Spirit of God who takes the things of Christ and presses them home upon our hearts. May you help us to find our way to the foot of the cross, to find the mercy and grace and love that is poured out abundantly for sinners. We worship you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.